here, there, and everywhere. SAFM 105.2 FM in East London. On SAFM. We're in conversation with Dr. Katlejo Mutudi, the MD, another MD. We're doing well for ourselves in this. Well done, of Board of Healthcare Funders, tracking the progress made by the Let's Vaccinate campaign, which was launched by Medical Schemes in September. This was launched by the BHF, Board of Healthcare Funders, which is the representative body of Medical Schemes medical schemes across eight African countries, including, of course, South Africa, and we will probably focus on South Africa for the most part, certainly for want of time. We'll also speak about the initiatives that the scheme have put in place, or the schemes have put in place, to support government in meeting the vaccination target of something between 70 to 90% before the end of the year. It's quite quite a mountain to climb, given the fact that, what, just short on four months, we're at the end of the year. Dr. Katlejo, good evening, sir. Thanks for your time. Welcome. Good evening, sir. How are you? Well, I couldn't be better. How about yourself? I'm all right. Thanks, Thanks for having us. Thank you for joining us. Um, quick question, just so that I don't be accused of ambushing you. We had a guest earlier on who represents the Hospice and Palliative Care Society Association. Her name is Lee Minot. She's the advocacy manager there. In my conversation with her, we spoke about, for instance, how there could be a redirecting of funds from the perspective of medical aid schemes in palliative care. I said that's a great point. Actually, we will be in conversation with the MD for Board of Healthcare Funders a little later, and it might be appropriate, certainly more appropriate for me to respond to that I mean, more appropriate for you to respond to that than to me. So please be on the lookout. It, it, it doesn't have to be an adversarial engagement. We will do it for yeah. three, four minutes just so that we can at least have the right conversation taking place between the more appropriate people in that regard. But for now, let's focus on the Let's Vaccinate campaign. Let's focus specifically on South Africa. Where are we insofar as helping government meet this target of 70 to 90 percent before the end of the year? Um the medical schemes and private sector at large um, have been supporting government efforts, um, not just for vaccination, but since the, the pandemic landed on our shores, mm. uh, making sure that we're able to uh, support, treat, test uh, anybody uh, in the private sector or affiliated to medical schemes with COVID. Specifically with the vaccination uh, uh, process, um, we have been part of um, the B4SA process, which is a, um, a huge collaboration with government. And from the onset, we were um, in discussions with government regarding firstly the funding, the pricing, and setting up of vaccination sites, and even more recently supporting the various campaigns, including the, the, the recently launched FUMA. Uh, campaign on mm-hmm. yeah. So most schemes um, have got these campaigns, and uh, also as a board of healthcare funders, we we have in the last few weeks launched the Let's Vaccinate um, campaign uh, with a view of supporting government to to reach herd immunity. 
And where are we insofar as it relates to working with government? Can you give us the percentage of the vaccinatable people to those who are actually vaccinated? And if you have any view as to what the dis- or why there is that discrepancy, can you shed some light from your perspective? We are still um, a long way from achieving um, our the, the, the numbers that we require. I think as of last week, uh, people who have received the single jab, um, I think we're, we're around 17 million, and inching towards, I think, 9 million for those who are fully uh, vaccinated. And if you remember the, the adult population that uh, needs to be vaccinated, uh, numbers have been close to about 22 million. My numbers might be a bit off. But from government's projections last year, Last, last week, uh, I think there were still more than 10 million people that need to be vaccinated to reach that 60 to 70 percent. What we, what we have seen, um, I think, in the last uh, few months, whenever we or government opened a specific uh, uh, sector or cohort of people, there would be an initial uh, rush uh, to vaccinate and then it would slow down. We saw that with almost all the age groups, when we looked at the, the over 60 and then the over 50, and even with the um, the over 18 now, um, though the, I think the biggest rush was seen now with the, with the um, over 18 to 34, um, where government, I think for some days, they were very close to the 300,000 uh, that they had projected we need to be at to fast-track the, the vaccination. What we have seen as well is that there are differences in provinces. Um, I think some of the smaller provinces actually have done well. I think provinces like Limpopo um, show, actually had a good showing. Mm-hmm. Um, but we, 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 we are at a point where we need to push and um, we still, uh, I think, less than 60% of people over the age of 16. There's a, there's a cohort, cohort that you are most worried about because uh, um, age was uh, uh, always regarded as the biggest risk factor in terms of uh, COVID, serious illness, and, and death. Very well. Let me just try and fast track and fast forward the conversation. Insofar as it relates to pricing, I heard you earlier on refer to pricing. These are the conversations you needed to have with government. What exactly did you mean by that? And in case there are any conspiracy theories or misinformation out there, what can you tell us about the cost of vaccination for anybody who wants to be vaccinated? Some of these things might be obvious, but not always the case, depending where you are listening from. Okay. So the, the, the costing and payments are actually issues that are done behind the scenes and not because that they are hidden, uh, but because um, COVID is a pandemic and thus uh, has attracted national and international attention. The decision was taken that at the point of service, there are no costs, whether you are insured or not insured. But the decisions that were taken much earlier on, um, since April of 2020, COVID was declared, and this is uh, important for medical skin beneficiaries, 
COVID was declared a prescribed minimum benefit condition, which means that any treatment testing for people that are declared to be uh, um, what they call uh, PUIs or person under investigation um, would be free at the point of service. Um, and sorry, the, the payment would also extend to in hospital and in rehabilitation uh, that uh, is required afterwards. And so the vaccines as well are fully covered. Um, there are two components um, that are charged uh, at the vaccination site. The first one is what you call the administration fees, uh, which covers uh, all the logistical arrangements and also towards the people who are working there. Those are covered. Uh, the pricing was determined by government. And secondly, the actual cost of the vaccine. And this is uh, regardless of uh, the vaccine that you receive, whether it's the Johnson & Johnson or the Pfizer. Mm, mm. Everything is actually either covered by government or covered by the main currency. This must be incredibly expensive for the funders i mean of course they have to honor these obligations but boy oh boy there's no way they could have prepared for this surely mm. yes um, we i think there was a sense of panic in the market um although i think the panic was largely uh, for the disease burden that we feared was going to overwhelm us um we we were looking at the rates that were observed elsewhere uh, before it came here. Um, but surprisingly, we we then, while we saw quite a number of people being admitted, the system was not overwhelmed. Um, and what we actually saw, we saw a reduction in uh, the utilization of, of services, largely driven by anxieties uh, to exposure to COVID. In fact, the very That's early, a good point. Yeah, the very early stages um, saw a reduction uh, in terms of hospitalization in some areas up to about 60%. Uh, while that appeared to be, I think, okay for the funders, it was not necessarily a good picture for on the service provision side because it meant that uh, uh, their income once was reduced. So here um, we have a situation of people who could otherwise use hospital facilities who are probably just grinning and bearing their pain at home for not wanting to expose themselves to the hospital environment where clearly and obviously they would be more rife of a COVID space. And I'm saying that almost as a preface to the conversation I mentioned earlier on, we would bring in Lee Minot. Lee Minot from the hospice. So say, I mean, let me just get this thing appropriately mentioned. I beg your pardon, my papers are all over the place. She's from the hospice Palliative Care Association Advocacy Manager Lee Minot. Do you just want to quickly pose your point or question to Dr. Gatlejo Mutudi, Board of Healthcare Funders, MD, in the context of just this last point we were talking about, which ties to what you were raising earlier on? Lee? Lee? To speak to you. Um, you know, I'm sure as you're aware, various stakeholders in the palliative care sector have been engaging with, with the Board of Healthcare Funders and, and various medical schemes about introducing palliative care benefits. And, and, and really, it's, 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 it is almost um, a, a, a win-win-win scenario for, for all involved. 
palliative care providers, patients themselves, and, and definitely medical aid schemes. I mean, we're seeing statistics show that 10% of, of, of medical aids, 10% of medical aid spend is spent on 0.5% of their beneficiaries. These are people in the last few weeks of their lives. So a disproportionate amount of, you know, end-of-life care is incredibly expensive and often patients and families are, are driven by fear and they just, just, you know, want the most expensive treatments. But but often that, that if the right supports was in place and the right expertise was there and, and, and we could turn to patient preferences, which for many people when they are terminal is to not die in the hospital, but, but die and, and, you know, in, in the comfort of their homes, it, you know, medical aims would see a huge reduction in their costs. We would see much better outcomes. Um, you might even be aware we recently had a, a webinar at the beginning of this year on accelerating access to palliative care. And, and Nancy Minnie, the wife of the late Dr. Clarence Minnie, who was the chair of, of the Board of Medical Aid Scheme, spoke so powerfully that even their family was unable to access the kind of palliative care that would have tremendously relieved both her husband suffering and, and, and the trauma that the family faced, including huge medical aid bills that they didn't ask for and didn't need. And so, you know, even even a family with that kind of access um, didn't get the care and support and, and is struggling in the wake of, of Dr. Minnie. So it just, it seems like there's so much more we can do and COVID has highlighted the need to accelerate palliative care. And yet it feels like medical aid... Mm-hmm think it's one more thing, it's more expensive, they're, they're overwhelmed. But I think COVID has highlighted the need to accelerate. And just, I've said a lot, I'm keen to hear your thoughts on, on this and, and why we're not collectively... Yeah, Lee, we have to go. I think together. he's got the point. Um, Gatlejo has got the point. Doc, um, do you want to just give a response? And of course, you, you, you can't obviously commit anybody to anything, but I think the response yeah. as to what potentially could be the outcome or potential of a future engagement, I've got at most a minute for your response, please. Okay. Yeah, let, let, let me say, uh, Sonia, so that the, 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 the current challenge that we face uh, in the medical environment is that... Um, uh, disbursement of funds is mostly diagnosis-based and uh, more than service-based. So while you, you would look for avenues to reduce costs, um, many people that, for example, a- end up in the hospices or requiring end-of-life care would have been maybe diagnosed with cancers, um, maybe advanced cancers. And treatment is just is, it would then be tailor-made according to um, the condition rather than the care. However, having said that, there has been a move now. I think the last few years there are many organizations that uh, have approved schemes and offer home-based care in lieu of hospitalization. And in my opinion, this could actually go a long way uh, into reducing costs. And I, 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 I suggest that uh, because these contracts are usually... Uh, not uh, debated or organized at the industry level because of competition issues, that mm. they approach schemes uh, specifically and propose this when they design their benefits. I don't see it as anything that could uh, not find favor because it would actually reduce cost. But uh, as I found as a warning earlier, that at the moment, cost or, or payments are more disease-based 
more than service-based. And as a result, uh, in cases where there would be advanced cancer, you'd find that there would be very reduced benefits that are allocated for those treatments. Well, thank you for responding. Thank you for engaging. And I think certainly your response will be the beginning of the early stages where the funders and the palliative care institutions could meet to work out modalities, one and most importantly, better healthcare outcomes in the country, and to that extent, with the reduced costs. And I don't think anybody from just what I've said would not be departing from the same foot. So thank you so much for the indulgence there, Dr. Gatleko Motudi, MD of Board of Healthcare Funders. And we certainly do look forward to knowing about the developments of this conversation, which hopefully we will claim in some very small part to have facilitated it taking place, but more importantly, to the ownership that the two organizations will engage going forward. 2146, that's the show, folks. There's never enough time. I absolutely hate it. But time is time. Tomorrow is also time. It's time.